This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. On November 27, 1978, Harvey Milk and George Moscone were assassinated in San Francisco City Hall. Milk, who was a San Francisco City Commissioner, was the first openly gay politician in California, and his legacy and memory have been preserved in film, books, literature, through activism, and through buildings named for him. Today, to help us discuss Harvey Milk and his time period and the legacy in activism and social movements that uh, have followed suit is Lisa Moore, professor of English and incoming interim director of the LGBTQ studies program here at the University of Texas. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, let's start for a moment by talking about who Harvey Milk was and where he came from and, and uh, who he was in the historical moment. Well, Harvey Milk himself liked to refer to himself as a nice Jewish boy uh, from the middle class background that had a good job in insurance and then moved to New York and discovered a whole new life for himself. So he was from a suburb of New York City. Um he was a well-educated person uh, who served in the Navy and um, worked in uh, finance and in insurance. But he was someone who, from a teenager, uh, also knew that he was gay. And um, for many years, as many people did in the late 40s and, and in the 50s, he pursued his homosexual relationships uh, mainly in secret. Uh, but the 60s kind of caught up with Harvey Milk and... Uh, changed his view of who he was and what he was doing in a way that he kind of uniquely was able to um, share with other people in a way that had a big impact. So one detail that I love about his biography is that um, it was actually a boyfriend who was in the cast of Hair, the musical Hair, the big free love musical, um, that first took Harvey Milk to San Francisco when the show went there. Um, so uh, that was in uh, the late 60s uh, and early 70s. Uh, both um, Harvey and his partner decided to stay there for a few years. And it was in the um, Castro neighborhood where uh, there had been a tradition since the end of World War II of settlement by demobilized uh, military officers who didn't want to go back to their small towns and go back into their closeted lives. It was there in the Castro that you really had one of the first uh, gay neighborhoods uh, in the United States. Other um, port cities ha saw similar um, you know, saw a similar explosion of gay camaraderie, queer camaraderie um, in uh, in those years. But uh, so Harvey Milk was somebody who um, kind of became a, an aging hippie um, because he was not 22 when that happened um, uh, and really uh, changed his view about um, the status of his sexual practice and his sexual preference in relation to his life in the wider culture, and he came to understand that it had value. So uh, San Francisco was one of the places where some of the post-World War II and 1950s era homophile associations, as they were known, got started. So the Daughters of Belitis for lesbians and the Mattachine Society for gay men um, began to... Uh, uh, 
create publications and um, and uh, invite experts to give talks to try to explore the idea, which at the time was very heretical, that maybe there was nothing wrong with being homosexual. Um, you know, this was at a time when it was certainly, it was considered uh, not only a mental illness, but also a, it was uh, defined as a crime in every state and federally, uh, and it uh, also was condemned um you know, by almost every major religion. Um, so this was really, this took a lot of creativity to create some kind of space for pushback against that consensus about the evils of homosexuality. And that was something that um, I think in some ways, because uh, Harvey Milk did have a background of a certain amount of privilege, he uh, he was relatively willing to believe that his life had value and that his preferences did not necessarily condemn him to worthlessness and sin. And um, also because, um, you know, as he'd love to refer to himself, uh, he was the top queen in any room that he went into. So he was very <laughs> flamboyant, very funny, um, very quick-witted, um, loved attention. Uh, so he was really able to start conversations um that were coming at a slightly later stage than the quiet, steady work of the um, people who'd been involved in the homophile movement. So one thing that was interesting is when he decided to run for city uh, city council, um, or the Board of Supervisors, as they call it in San Francisco, um, he was actually running against uh, a candidate, another gay candidate, who was more affiliated with the slightly older generation, the Mattachine Society, and so on, who were Harvey Milk's age mates. But Harvey Milk was kind of coming in with the um, the flower child generation, um, and was uh, you know sort of more representing this new way of thinking about homosexuality, and that caused uh, some um, infighting and some splits in the uh, in the gay community because there were, certainly were people who felt like. Um, other people had really been uh, paving the way for a long time and had worked their way into the position of being leaders, um, speaking for uh, gay and lesbian people and uh, other queer people in San Francisco. And, you know, Harvey Milk was kind of swanning in at the last minute and making a big splash. Uh, so actually, one detail that I find interesting is that um, Harvey Milk did not initially get the endorsement of the um, the Gay Business Association in San Francisco. It went to this other candidate who um, had worked with those businesses for a long time and really had earned their trust. But eventually, Harvey Milk was successful in uh, getting elected to um, to the Board of Supervisors. But the first time he was elected, he actually quit after uh, just a few weeks because he wanted to run for state assemblyman. Um, he lost that race, then he went back to the Board of Supervisors, and it was during that second term um, that the tragic events that you referred to in your opening started to happen. So it's interesting. I mean, uh, San Francisco was at, uh, in the Castro District, uh, was at that turning point that we're familiar with now, we call it gentrification, where a uh, uh, working class community that had been there for a long time was... Um, uh, starting to be uh, displaced by, um, in this case, gay people, um, but other people from um, other parts of the country who were moving to San Francisco in search of a certain lifestyle. Um, so uh, there was a lot of conflict between a very uh, culturally conservative, traditional Irish Catholic community in the Castro that was uh, 
heavily represented on the police force, for example, um, and this wave of hippies, um, many of whom uh, were moving to the Castro because they wanted to live as openly gay people. Um, one thing that was interesting about the coalition that Harvey Milk was able to build up is that really for the first time it was, although, you know, most of the people he surrounded himself with were men, he understood the importance of having women um, as part of uh, the sort of face and visibility of the movement. So he uh, was uh, very much supported by uh, a longtime um, iconic lesbian couple, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, who had founded the Daughters of Bolitis, and Harvey Milk's um, chief of staff for all of his campaigns was a lesbian too, Ann Bronfman. Um, so that was sort of a, a, a kind of um, new understanding of a coalition between men and women um, in what had been a pretty segregated uh, scene and movement. So the moment at which Harvey Milk is, is taken off the, the stage, tragically, mm-hmm. uh, because of his assassination, is it, it's right on the cu- eve, uh, let's say, of the, the AIDS crisis. So we're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was his immediate legacy and, and, and what has his legacy been, mm-hmm. um, particularly for, as you mentioned, uh, as you were talking about, you know, the sort of generational split. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. funny because, you know, it, it actually sort of echoes the way people talk now about the generational split between the younger and, and older mm-hmm. generation of, of people who feel like they've done all, made all of these strides for rights and then uh, the younger generation takes it for granted. Mm-hmm. So um, how was that baton passed, if you will? Well, I think one reason that Harvey Milk became a martyr and an icon, aside from the fact that, of course, he was tragically murdered, um, is because he did uh, symbolize a moment of sex-positive, sexual openness, freedom, um, the ability to uh, enjoy a... um, way of being gay that was really distinct from um, normative married heterosexuality. It was uh, uh, a scene that where you could celebrate having multiple partners or you could be partnered for life if you wanted, you know, um, where there were plenty of places to, to go and have sex in public or you could rent an apartment in the Castro as a couple and, um, and have a domestic life. So um, I think because he died before the AIDS crisis really took hold in the United States, um, you know, he was never associated with anything except discovering that joyful, open, sex-positive, um, promiscuous in the best sense, uh, you know, we are a sexual people, that's our gift to the world kind of sense of, of being gay. And, um, you know, that was one of the tragic losses of the uh, AIDS era and the AIDS epidemic was a loss of that sense of not only that gay was good, but that in some ways, gay had something to offer that was distinctive, that was maybe even better, or something that society needed in terms of, um, you know, openly taking pleasure in one's sexuality and not having it always be tied to reproduction, to the family, to capitalism, you know, that there was a kind of sexual freedom uh, that um, many people felt like got shut down during the AIDS era. And so he kind of remained a figure for the acme of that and also for the death of that. I think uh, the other thing about Harvey's death was um, it confirmed fears that the backlash against gay liberation was going to be deadly. 
Mm-hmm. And um, that is a push-pull in American history with every civil rights movement, but certainly has been true uh, of queer liberation, has been, you know, a period of relative tolerance or openness, usually followed by a backlash. So, um, you know, even to talk about the 80s and AIDS, uh, in some ways, uh, the uh, terrible oppression of those years and the terror and the losses that we sustained gave rise to really militant activism that pushed the needle on gay rights with things like ACT UP and Queer Nation and Queer Rage and Lesbian Avengers. Uh, You know, just the names of these organizations letting you know that um, this uh, was coming from a place of we have nothing to lose um, and we may as well just fight in the streets and in the NIH and in the halls of... um, of government and in St. Patrick's Cathedral. You know, we we may as well, we're dying, so we may as well uh, fight for our lives. And that did push the needle on um, visibility and on uh, some legal protections for people with AIDS and for queer people. But then you had in the late 90s, the beginning of the uh, passage of all of these Defense of Marriage Acts and um, laws that said that people uh, could not be protected on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, And so that sort of is what ushered in uh, the backlash that we saw with all of the legal prohibitions on specifically gay marriage that became something that um, opponents of gay rights took up as a Um, as a cause. And in my experience as, you know, someone who uh, came out in the mid-1980s in my early 20s and sort of lived through all of this, you know, gay marriage was never something that was on our radar. But once there started to be these well-funded national campaigns against it, then it that kind of put it on uh, the agenda of activists who were fighting homophobia because it was clear that these laws were less about marriage and more about putting us back in the closet, um, making us afraid, defining our lives out of existence. And so for that reason, those laws had to be fought. Yeah, I think many people my age, I'm 54, kind of came around to wanting to be married quite late in the game. It was more that we didn't want to be discriminated against. Um, And now, you know, as you mentioned, I think that has really changed. Um, I think what we discovered, and perhaps what the right sensed when they first started uh, um, trying to uh, rule us out of the marriage business, is that marriage actually stands for a very deep form of belonging that um, has done a lot to explain um, a certain version of gayness uh, to, um, you know, a, a, a a wider community that may uh, have felt like they were unfamiliar with, say, the lifestyle that Harvey Milk represented, which I still treasure and which I think is uh, a very distinctive and important form of gay and queer uh, culture. Uh, but it's just one form, um, and it's it's the most culturally specific and perhaps the least, um, you know, palatable and widely understandable. Um, so marriage has actually had, it's been the thin edge of a wedge that um, I wouldn't have predicted um, in the 80s and 90s. I, I, I agree with you. I remember having this conversation around the time the debate was raging in Massachusetts and saying, oh, it'll never happen. Uh, 
you know. Um, and and I think it, it's interesting that you talk about this wave effect because, you know, we can sort of see it again. We we had the marriage ruling a, a, a few years ago, and then you know it follows suit. You know, especially here in Texas, where uh, just because you're married doesn't mean that you're entitled to uh, partner benefits mm-hmm. or. Um, in some states, well, you can get married, but you can't get divorced mm-hmm. um, because the law, the, only the marriage law was changed to be more inclusive. Um, and now, of course, uh, we're have, seeing pushback once again uh, with things like the uh, rollback of uh, or the attended rollback of transgender protections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that that appears to be the next battleground that that's brewing. Yes. Um, so I would say that these so-called bathroom bills, which are attempts to uh, try to monitor uh, where people can put their bodies based on someone's perception of their gender at birth. Um, and you're referring to the Health and Human Services um, internal memo that was just leaked last weekend saying that the federal government is going to seek to define um, sex and gender based on genitals at birth. Right. I mean, there's so many problems with that, um, one of which is that 2% of everybody ever born is intersex, which means that they don't have straightforwardly readable male or female genitals. That's as many people in the population as there are redheads. So, you know, this is not a problem of just one tiny community. This is an attempt to regulate something that has never been clear-cut, never been regulated uh, successfully. And that's why gender has always been a hot-button cultural topic. Um, But I would say that these bathroom bills are the equivalent of the Defense of Marriage Acts of the 90s and early uh, aughts in the sense that they come out of right-wing think tanks and are uh, planted in state houses across the country with almost identical language uh, in an attempt to um, maintain control over sex and gender because it's so at the heart of human freedom. It's fascinating to think about what Harvey Milk would think about everything that's happened since since he passed mm-hmm. um since well you know the last couple of years of his life he was uh fighting a bill in california uh that would ban gay people from being teachers right um but that was his big victory and and uh the victory of a whole movement um but a victory that he was very much involved with and part of and it was an incredible pushback that's why i think um when the Miami-Dade County ordinance happened uh, a, a year or so later, um, that was the Anita Bryant um, mm-hmm. campaign to try to um, uh, rule that the city of Miami, which of course had a big gay community, could not um, uh, provide protections to people on the basis of sexual orientation. That won. And I think that was a big shock to people. Um, and so be- between Briggs, where... Uh, they managed to defeat the initiative that would have made it mandatory to fire every teacher who was homosexual, which would have included finding out which teachers were homosexual. Right. And I mean, it just, there were a lot of layers of awful to that. And then um, the successful Anita Bryant, quote unquote, Save Our Children campaign in Florida, you saw the battle, gra- the battle lines being drawn for um, the next 50 years, really, of um, struggle. Yeah. Well, Thank you very much for being here to discuss Harvey and his legacy. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the Apple Podcasts app, 
Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive director is Joan Newberger, and our technical editors are Augusta Delomo and Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.